is film like milk. Yes. It's got culture in it. And it's. Mm, damn it. Leche. <laughs> Whole milk. Skim milk. Medium milk. I have nipples, Greg. Could you milk Could me? Could you milk me? Welcome back to Age Like Milk, the film podcast where we decide if a film has gone bad in the mind fridge of your mind over time. I am one of your hosts, Paris Ann Herbert Taylor. There's my middle name for you. And uh, with me as ever is my lovely co-host, David William Rogers. Hello. Good eye. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> Here we go. You know that's a hate crime, right? That's what? A hate crime. That is so, not a hate crime. I'm just kidding. Um, I, have, I have an Australian friend. I have an Australian friend. It's okay. I have an Australian friend. David, you've already given the game away. What film are we doing today on the pod? film we are doing today is Two Hands, 1999. Director and writer, is it Gregor Jordan? And then Heath Ledger, Brian Brown, and Rose, is it, how do you pronounce your last name? Burn, come on Rose Burn, who I have a crush on, huge yeah. crush on, yeah. can't pronounce her last name, but she's fantastic. Well, I it's love never going to work out between you if you can't get her name right. Yeah, it's, it's okay, as long as I, just Rose, you know, and uh, Rose. love her, love the new show she's got, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I had not heard or seen this movie, and I'm glad I watched it. Because I was geeking out at yes. a lot of it. Yes, we do have an Australian guest joining us, which is why we are watching an Australian film today. But David, before we get to who our wonderful industry guest is today, what is this movie about? All right. So my take is it. All right, you got this younger guy coming up. Um, he's working outside of a strip club, basically, and he kind of gets drug into crime. And you see his brother, who's like pretty much a zombie kind of watching over him kind of in the background who also went down this path, ended up getting killed. So we kind of see Heath Ledger getting sucked into this world that his brother was going through the trials and tribulations. He becomes a runner, loses 10 grand through these two like punk kids that uh, grabbed his stuff because he made a couple of bad decisions uh, while trying to be a courier. And then he's basically from then it's just like high octane. He's on the run. He hangs out with Rose. He's falling for her. He gets caught by these criminals that he kind of fucked over because he went to go see her. And then there's this hilarious bank robbery because he's trying to get this money back. And in the end, he chooses not to keep going down that path that his brother did and get out of that life and move forward with Rose. Um, so this is a Interesting movie. I, I wish I heard about it because this is kind of my speed as far as some of these movies go. So I, I thought it was great to see a young Heath uh, and a young Rose. And I recognize a lot of the actors in this. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just all around, it was a, it was a pretty fun ride for me. Well, I love that you love Aussie films. It's something mm-hmm. that I appreciate about you because, you know, it's technically in the foreign film section, even though we're all speaking the same language. Although, even I was like, what did he just say? You know, like some of the some of the slang is a little bit. Um, yeah, it's very Australian. I will give it that. Uh, and on that note, let's introduce our Australian guest, Cameron. Yeah. Hello to Hello. you. Hello. So up, nice Cameron? to be with you guys. Thank yes. you so much for having me. Of course. Cameron Pinches, everybody. Uh, I've got Cameron's bio here. It's extremely impressive. Uh, we'll start with his most recent role, which is 
He is the senior development executive at ScreenCraft. And if you don't know what ScreenCraft is, it's a brand and platform for screenwriters and filmmakers that engages with over 200,000 aspiring and inspiring creatives. Um, They have programs that range from, you know, being in pitch rooms with people. It's a chance for people to, you know, get to meet people from studios. Um, It's just like really interesting. And Cameron, since joining, you've facilitated the signings of aspiring screenwriters, filmmakers, and their projects with CAA, UTA, A3, Management 360, Zero Gravity, and Gersh, among many others. So you're basically bridging the gap between people who maybe haven't, you know, quote unquote, made it in the industry yet to, you know, these big time manager types, which is very exciting. So yeah, we're excited to talk more about it. Um, you're originally from Melbourne and, uh, what else do we need to know about you? You've come through the agency world and done a lot of different cool things. Yeah. I've been around a little bit. Um, <laughs> you know. so I've been around yeah. <laughs> I existed. By, by design for the most part anyway. You know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's been good. I've been like able to get, you know, experience on in different corners of the industry. So it's, it's been really good. Everything kind of t- has tied in together. Let's talk about ScreenCraft because that's where you are now. And how long have you been with them at this point? Uh, I've been there for six months now, so still very fresh. Fresh. And what is the best part about working at ScreenCraft uh, for you? Uh, For me personally, it's probably just the autonomy of having a little bit of a say of how the brand is represented externally and then also having the industry contact facing side of the brand too. So um, it's really representing, you know, the operational on riders that are coming through the competitions to then be able to, as you said, you know, connect them with, with industry members. And I mean, that's, that's a real thrill. Like I, I really get a kick out of that. So, um, that's yeah. been wonderful. Yeah, most definitely. And, uh, I know we just recently spoke about it when we did a little zoom and met for the first time, but how many programs currently do you guys have offered throughout the year? Yeah. So there's 16 different competitions throughout the course of the year. And each one of them uh, will, for the most part, have 25 different finalists. So mm-hmm. we're in contact with over 500 different finalists for each of our competitions over the course of the year. So it's a, it's a large amount of, of voices that we're getting through. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a mixture too of established voices as well as fresh voices. You know, we have Emmy winners that are coming through the competitions, Fulbright scholars, you know, people that are already managed, that are already repped and they're using um, ScreenCraft as a, as a platform to be able to, to leverage their material and, and get momentum behind their projects. That is so exciting, especially because sometimes it can feel like there's no way through the fence or the bubble uh, yeah. of this industry. So what's something that uh, you've noticed with people who are maybe more on the coming up side as writers? Um, I think just the perception is interesting, you know, when of the industry, I mean, and, and of what their expectations are for what they think that they need in order to take the next step in their career, because there's a lot of conflicting information that's out there. And that's probably the biggest hurdle that we face when we're connecting with, with fresher voices is about, you know, setting those expectations in place and really communicating to, to each of the writers that they have a lot of agency and how they can advance their career. They don't necessarily have to feel like they need to be reliant on someone else to, to take that next step with their project or with their career. So it's more, we're really focused on, on trying to empower our finalists. That's, mm. that's a big focus. 
I love that. Yeah. And uh, I know you can't always talk about so much of the projects, but do you tend to see a lot of like the same names come through the programs, through the competitions? Yeah, certainly. So I think that's probably a really big strength in all honesty that we have. We just had our stage play competition that we closed a couple of weeks ago and, and the winner was a former winner of the TV pilot competition, ah. but is also a playwright. Ah. So she's across multiple formats and, you know, it would probably come as no surprise that being able to write in the TV space and then being able to write, you know, in the theater space as well, we, we were able to get assigned at CAA straight off, oh off the back God, of the competition. Oh my God, that's huge. Yeah, yeah, huge for her. Yeah. Um, and we're on the finish line with a management company as of yesterday. So, um, you know, that that's just a great example of someone that's that's come through twice in order to get the success that they were, that they were after. So we have a lot of repeat you know, sort of people that are on our radar that are coming through multiple competitions. Yeah. So how does it work then? If I'm somebody that wants to apply for something, obviously I need to make sure that the thing that I'm submitting is the right format. Um, walk me through. So since I apply and then what happens, do you guys have a bunch of readers? How do you distinguish like what makes a finalist versus like just a normal entry? Yeah, sure. So I, it kind of blew my mind when I found out exactly how many readers ScreenCraft has it at its disposal. So it's going through like a very, very detailed vetting process. So it's going through stages, um, through quarter finalists, which we announce and we notify notify the winners that they've reached that stage, and then into semi-finalists, and then ultimately into the 25 finalists that we select. And they're getting a number of reads as they advance through the competition. So for the ones that say are a quarter finalist and they don't make it through to the semi-final stage, obviously they don't get an additional read. But as they reach these sort of landmarks, they're getting an additional read and then they're put on our radar. And we have, you know, like a really robust discussion about the material and about the POV of the writer. And yeah, it's wonderful. I mean, I think it gives us the opportunity to represent a really diverse array of material and, and different voices. Totally. Um, okay. So if I'm like the a person that hasn't applied for a competition before, what is something from your side, at least that makes a script sort of stand out that might go the distance to become like a finalist type script? Sure. I mean, yeah, I, <laughs> I might be setting myself that's, up. That's a, a very broad, and that's a very no, no, broad no, no. question. I, I, should an, say. I have an answer to it. I'm just like kind of laughing at myself because it might be completely the wrong take. Um, and I guess we're going to find out down the line, but <laughs> I, I think material that is polarizing really stands mm. out because we're able to, as I said, like have debates about it on, on our end. So oftentimes we'll find when we're discussing the, the 25 finalists because art, you know, in, in every format is subjective, right? There's no, yeah. there's no form, you know, formula or format that I can say to a writer, do this and you will be a finalist. Like that sure. just doesn't exist. So I think writing that's yeah, a little bit polarizing that, ultimately probably needs a bit of a champion as it's coming through the rounds. That's stuff that really, yeah. Um, when you say I, pol polarizing, do you mean like thematically? No, I mean, you know, that it might resonate with one reader at more mm. so than, than another, rather than sort of just like a paint by numbers, you know, mm. straight, whatever, that's trying to tick boxes and, and ultimately fit in a box. And I think that with taking that approach, we've been able to identify some material that, that is really resonating on the management side and on the agency side and, and in the industry, because when we share it, you know, industry members are saying, oh, I've never read like anything like this before. This premise is awesome. Like there isn't anything else that I'm reading that's out there like this. So we're finding do you guys, do you guys set meetings and have these discussions when you do find something that's really polarizing and you want to discuss it? And then do you guys do yeah. that like in person, Zoom? How does that work when you guys are discussing um, like one of the reads? 
yeah, so at the moment, like the rest of the industry, we're pretty bound to Zoom, unfortunately. I, mm-hmm. I would love to be able to do it in person. But yeah, as I said, we have, you know, a really, really robust discussion around the finalists. I take that super seriously, probably more so than any other aspect of my job. And we're on we're on Zooms for, you know, more than two hours discussing the material. Wow. And we're representing, you know, the way that it's structured is we have senior story analysts that are the people that have read every single script. So their volume of reading is, you know, astronomical. Um, and then I've covered as much of the material myself as, w- as well that I can sort of with the bandwidth of having to read all of these scripts, you know. While also the doing the, the other elements of your job, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> and I lean really heavily on, on those guys because they're the ones that, that have read the material and, and it's good to represent you know, their taste in, in who we ultimately se- select. And it's totally hats off um, to our story analysts because it's it's starting to really resonate in the industry. So, yeah, we're, we're taking, I think, you know, like some swings and doing trying to do some interesting things. And I think that that's, it seems to be setting us apart a little bit. Yeah. Do, do, you, do you see like success stories, like people, you know, down the line? I mean, I, I know you've only been with Screencraft for like six months. Mm-hmm. But do you feel like a sense of pride when you see somebody that you like knew was a finalist or something? And then like now they're just like crushing it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I had coffee during the week with um, the writer that I told you was just signed to CAA and we mm-hmm. sat down and I kind of looked at her and I was like, do you understand how your life is about to change? Do you oh have my any God. idea? No, she just, probably has no idea. I think at, in that moment, all of a sudden she had an idea and she was just mm-hmm. like, her face just changed. Like she went back and it was just like a moment of, oh my Aww. goodness, you know, That's like awesome. so cool. And I mean, it's, I just feel like so lucky to be able to be there in that moment and be like, wow, like this is huge for you. you know? I'm so yeah. excited. Um, so yeah, it's wonderful. I, I kind of take advantage of that as well because I, I used to email the writer and be like, Hey, you know, so-and-so wants to enter into a shopping agreement for your, for your script or um, we're going to, you know, approach this piece of talent or whatever for your project. Whereas now I'm like, do you have two minutes to jump on the phone? Because I want like, you know, that connection. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I want to be, I want to convey to them like how exciting it is. Um, and I nearly got myself into trouble yesterday with that writer. I said, we're on the finish line with a management company. And I'm like, you know, do you have two minutes to jump on the phone? She's driving. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, so this ex ex management company wants to meet and this is the one that we really wanted. And this manager is amazing. And I, you know, I can't believe that this is happening. And she's like, I'm so sorry. I just totally drove past my house because I was, I was so excited. <laughs> by so I probably should stop doing it over the phone, but Joel, just make sure that people are like somewhere that they're going to save like, place yeah, to talk. crash into right. a wall or something, <laughs> yeah, right. you know, right, well, exactly. that, that is so awesome, Cameron. And it's like, you know, we spoke in a previous episode to a development guy who was saying like, at the end of the day, getting through, getting something made or getting something to the finish line is such a team collaboration and it's like such a team effort. And I think competitions like ScreenCraft are so much a part of that because, you know, we talked about this development guy, like it's often hard to get your material into people's hands that actually might want to read it, but like just similar to you, like the sheer volume of things that are put on your desk or in your email every single day, it's really unfeasible for like someone on Twitter to like message you, DM you and be like, Hey, like I've got my script. So a lot of these people do come through like managers and agents and stuff like that, or a competition where then you have like a laurel kind of where you can say, well, you know, this highly regarded industry competition, you know, said out of all the other comedy pilots that got submitted, you know, this was a good one. So I think it's a very valuable tool. And I think people that don't know about ScreenCraft should totally check it out because you guys have a lot of different projects. 
Yeah, for sure. And I think like there's also, there's a flip side to that coin as well, right? A huge part of our job is, as I said, you know, setting realistic expectations and in some instances protecting writers against themselves by overexposing themselves to the industry and, you know, sending that material to a person at a time that it isn't right, you know, to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's a really hard conversation to have sometimes, but it is actually ultimately in the best interests of the writer because, you want to be hyper, hyper targeted and really hit a target when you are sharing your material because as soon as someone passes on that material, it's it's next to impossible to re-engage that conversation again down the line mm. because of the amount of material that that you know producers or managers are being exposed to. So you really want to be timely about having that conversation. Can you speak a little bit more about that then when you say targeted? Because obviously if you're a writer and you think your project, you've been working on your project for years and you think it's the most amazing thing, of course, you're going to think, well, everybody's going to want to read it. So when you say targeted, do you mean people that rep writers similar to you? Do you mean people who have projects similar? Like, can you expound on that a little bit? Yeah, of course. So, you know, we we're talking about we're having, we have writers of different levels and we have people that have, you know, been Sundance fellows or, as I said, you know, won, won awards along the way or come through prestigious MFA programs or, or the like. You're really looking to align your level of experience in the industry. If you're a writer's assistant in a room, that obviously counts for something on the management side. So you want to align really with your target of of who you're looking to query or reach out to in terms of where you're at in your career. So it's unrealistic for the most part, you know, to reach out to a partner of a management agency if you're someone who's just put together the first sample in your portfolio, right? Like there's really not much point in doing that. And once you sort of go down that road, it's it's hard to rejig it again down the line where it might be more suitable for you to have that conversation mm-hmm. with that person. So it might be more appropriate to reach out to a coordinator or a junior manager or um, you know someone that perhaps has been an assistant to a producer for the last three years that's thinking about breaking out on their own or something like that. That's what I mean in terms of being targeted. And then also you want to look at you know, the roster of clients for the management company. What are the clients doing? Do they focus on comedy? Do they focus on genre? Do they Mm. multi-hyphenates? Like, and then be, take all of that into account and then, you know, choose, choose your target wisely. Makes sense. Because like you said, everybody's very busy. And if you pitch something to someone and they're like, "Ah, this guy pitched me a creature feature and I do half hour network comedy, then yeah, it's a relationship business, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, an agent told me during the week um, that she just focuses on specialty drama in the TV space and that's all that she is interested in and that's what her roster is made up of. And she's like, I get queries of people wanting to send me comedy samples and what do you think I do with them? I don't open them. You yeah, know? So, it's trash. So, yeah. I mean, and it's it's not that it's poor material, but no. you, you have to just, yeah, you know, um, be a little bit thoughtful about how you go about the process. And that's sort of where we come in because we do have these existing relationships and we can be targeted. And, you know, I would imagine for the most part, when we do reach out to an industry member, it it counts for something and it's meaningful because we have a good track record of being able to, you know, act as a broker between creatives and industry folk. Track record is so important too, right, Cameron? Because like, it's like, a currency in our business, right? Like having a good, having good taste or like recommending someone. I am always very conscious of that when I'm introducing people or networking people together that like, if you, if I say like, Oh, meet David and David's a dickhead, which obviously he's not, uh, he's like, well, maybe, uh, you know, then it's like that kind of reflects poorly on me. So I understand where you're coming from in that regards. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And look, it's not, as I was saying earlier, you know, 
nothing would make me happier if I could get every single one of the, you know, 500 finalists that we deal with, believe me, like I, I would be so happy to do that. Um, but it, you have to protect, as you said, you're not, not so much the reputation, but just credibility. Just the rela- yeah. Credibility yeah. And, the, and the relationship. And also I genuinely do mean, you know, like protecting the writer against themselves. Like in my background, um, we were always very conscious about exposing material into the marketplace because mm. if it's premature, then it ultimately hurts the project and you can apply the exact same principles to, to writers oh, um, yeah. or filmmakers. Well, you wouldn't throw a first year med school student into a, you know, crazy <laughs> surgery, you know, or something right. like that. This is Doogie Hauser. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, no, it's fascinating what you say. And as you say, like, it's 500 finalists. That sounds like a lot. It sounds like a lot to me. Yeah. That's 500, that's 500 projects, like separate projects. Jesus. Yeah. We do get, you know, there's a few over there that, that are repeat projects that perhaps have been wrecked you know, represented in a feature competition, but then also a genre competition mm. um, because there are different formats. But, you know, we have a great team and and part of, you know, the, the writer development team that we have put together is really just providing education for the writers to then enable them to go and, as I said, you know, have agency with with their career. And we work on on querying, um, querying uh, strategy and, um, yeah, or, or a whole range of things. It's not just about being represented or, securing a manager there's as you, as you know like a range of ways that you can go about putting things together so it yeah. sounds like you guys are you know obviously in the writers corners too like you want them to succeed which i think sometimes people on the outside looking in think uh oh you know they're they're gatekeeping or whatever i, I see that word gatekeeping get thrown around a lot on twitter but realistically from what i've seen it's like everybody wants to get to the fastest yes right yeah, exactly. But that means being prepared. That means being, like you said, having material in the right way. And yeah. Yeah. And, you know, to go back to that writer as an example, the one that I was talking about that just won our stage play competition, um, you know, the things that she was doing behind the scenes, I, I couldn't believe that like she was keeping submission grids of the people that she was sharing her wow. material with. She had been recognized, I think, across five different national competitions. She was an award winner in wow. a multitude of things. She'd had one of her plays produced. Um, you know, so there are things that that she's doing to generate that sense of momentum for her career. It's it, uh, it's silly for me to say that I really did anything. It was for screen her. craft. We uh, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, like well, it's me. I did this. Well, <laughs> no, not at to, all. Not, not at, at all. all. To talk about gatekeeping, what what is the benefit for them to keep uh, talented and creative people outside, right, or at an arm's distance? They want to push the good projects forward to say, like, look what happened. Well, you know, we help these people to get greenlit or whatever. Get well, what's signed. interesting is you said so, the good projects. And I think that's where things get messy in our business, right? Because what is the definition of good? Like so much can boil down to like what Cameron was saying with his readers. If someone's polarized, if one person's like, mm-hmm. this is the funniest script I've ever read. And someone else is like, this humor is just not hitting for me. Like, especially in something like comedy, which I only bring up because I love to write comedy. It's like, it, it might not translate, you know, an Australian mm. comedy, like for example, two hands, a dark comedy might not be totally digestible by an American audience or a German audience or whatever, you know, but then that's just that, that route. And then they can yeah. take another route. So totally. it's not like on their end. Now nah, we're just going to keep all these people back and hold them at a distance because there are other routes, but they're trying to put people forward and right. help people to be successful. 
Well, right. similar, similar to what Cameron was saying with this person, like, I think it's silly to think that not no shade to ScreenCraft. It's an amazing organization. But like, if you apply to, let's say the features competition and your feature doesn't make it to the finals, that doesn't mean your project isn't good. It just means that it wasn't the, a finalist level for this particular mm-hmm. instance. And you just never know. It could have been last year. It could have been 10 years from now, but like maybe the material where it's at right now um, is not is not where it's at, but I think it's the stuff that you do behind the scenes. Like it's the, you know, if you're a writer, you do have to write, but you also have to network and you also have to Mm -hmm. submit to things and you also have to, you know, X, Y, Z. So. Yeah. And I think that that's actually an accurate representation of how the business works internally. Right. Because, you know, things go through different iterations and different drafts. So, you know, we, it's it's really common for a screenplay to be represented as, you know, a quarter finalist for this competition in this year. And then the writer goes away and does another draft and then it becomes a finalist the next year. And oh, that's, wow. that's, you know, the, it's really about the repeat submissions in order to continue to generate momentum. And, you know, some of the finest writers that we have coming through the competitions are ones that have multiple accolades across, you know, a variety of different screencraft programs mm-hmm. um and they've just stuck at it you know to use another active example um off the back of that success that we've just had with stage play we submitted the previous year's winner um to a different agency and the agency came back and was like this is one of the best scripts uh, this is one of the best plays i've ever read i, I would love to wow. sign sign him and it's just he's done really nothing to, to my knowledge like to change his material, it's just about finding that right person that ultimately is going to become his right shape. person at the mm-hmm. right time. Right. I can see right. what see what he's trying to put out. Yeah. It's so funny that so much of this business is like timing meets luck meets preparedness. Um, you know, and there's there's things that you can control, like putting your butt in the chair and actually finishing a script or, you know, polishing it. And then there's things that you just can't control. Like you said, this guy it's from last year. And now this other person is like, this is the best let's go, you know? And maybe, maybe they wouldn't have been in that position a year ago, you know? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, maybe that agent's, you know, roster has changed over the course Mm -hmm. of the past 12 months. Maybe she lost a client or, or, you know, um, whatever. Diversified or whatever. Yeah, exactly. It's just, as you said, timing, luck, it's just about the stars aligning. Um, but I think that we hopefully like kind of, take some of the guesswork out of that process because we do hear like what people are looking for. And then we can just act as a bit of a broker, you know, Love between, that. between the two, but we have, abs- I would take zero credit, like you said, for the actual currency of the writing that's has nothing to do with what we're doing. We just want to advocate on behalf of, of these people and find them a great result. I love that. And on that note, speaking of great results, let's talk mm-hmm. about the 1999 mm-hmm. film, Two Hands, which Cameron suggested. Cameron, why did you pick this movie? Or I know it was in a short list, but why was this on the list of movies that you were like, hey, maybe we could do one of these? Well, when you said a movie from your childhood, I grew up with this film poster on my wall. No um, way. Yeah. And uh, similarly to David, fell in love with Roseburn immediately. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it, was, it just seemed appropriate. And obviously, you know, the Aussie connection, we got to keep that going. Got to represent the Aussies. And I am definitely over time making David watch more and more Australian films. Uh, you know, there's some real classics. And I would have to say for me, Two Hands is one of the ones like I think I studied this at film school in Australia. Uh, it's definitely um, not your typical Australian fare, because I think when people think of Australian movies, they're like, oh, Crocodile Dundee, like, you know, <laughs> someone being uber Australian, Kangaroo Jack. Um, David, as someone who had never seen this film, what was your first impression? Uh, first impression, 
I, I didn't really know what to think. I didn't know if this was going to be like looking at just the poster. Are they going to be shooting something up? Bonnie and Clyde type thing, natural born killers, whatever, like an action rom-com or something like that. So I really didn't know going into it. I didn't look up anything. And then starting to watch it, I sank into it pretty early on. And uh, I don't know, I just <laughs> from the start to finish, I was entertained, basically. I totally forgot that this movie starts with a zombie. It's Heath, <laughs> it's, it's Heath Ledger, right? It's Heath Ledger playing his older brother as a zombie. I couldn't find. No, no, no. It's no. not. No, it's, I'm pretty sure it's Steve Vidler. Okay. He looks a lot like Heath Ledger. And I was looking down the list and maybe I didn't look closely enough, but I totally, you're right. The man, Steve Vidler, it's right there in the fucking like top six. But I, (laughs) I, it's because I was like looking for like zombie brother on the thing, but it starts with this guy like sort of scraping his way, I think out of his grave. Is that what he's doing? He's like trying to tunnel up. Yeah, there's. I think it's an animation or whatever, but it's got Sydney kind yeah. of on top of the earth, and I guess he's coming from the middle of the earth, which never really is explained. But yeah, I, I think it might be um, like kind of that marshy area where they dumped him. Right, but he's coming from like the core, right? Like there's the hot core in the middle. And, yeah, and then, I'm, yeah. It's it, it's just different for the rest of the film. I think like this mm-hmm. this zombie guy is sort of out of place because what you've got if you remove that is like a very interesting like dark comedy of, uh, you know, a guy that's kind of being led down the wrong path. And I just completely, not that I didn't like it as a device, but I just completely forgot that the zombie was in this. And so I was like, <laughs> wait, what's he doing here? Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it is a dark comedy. And I don't think we always see Australians in like very Australian specific like films like this, you know, or like certainly not on the grand stage. Um, Rose Byrne, gorgeous in this. Love it. Young Heath Ledger. Uh, David, did you feel any type of way about the crimes being committed? Because I felt like they were portrayed in a very like jokey way. And then the one guy does like get shot and die. And like, it's just sort of jarring. Yeah. So um, a a little bit, because it's kind of reminded me of... Like uh, like Snatch. You, you guys have mm-hmm. ever seen the movie Snatch? I yeah. love the movie Snatch. Yeah, kind, kind of along those lines. Um, so that's why I love this movie because that that's one of my favorite movies. But I thought that crime scene was just so funny. I was geeking out. They did it so well. And Heath with his just like trying to grab his guy, uh, Wowza. <laughs> Wait, you have to explain to that. those who might not have seen it. So they go okay, to rob so a they, bank. So, so Heath, Ledger, Heath Ledger is 10 grand down to these these uh, criminals in town that gave him his first job being a courier. Right. So he loses that 10 grand to like a couple street kids and he's got to figure out a way to get this money back. So he's, he's talking to somebody that knew his older brother who is touched in with uh, more criminals. So he's got to find a job. So they talk about this, they find a bank job, they pull up and he runs in there. He, you know, he shoots the camera, everybody drops to the floor. And then while the main like, criminal, who's done this before jumps over, grabs the money. And as he's coming back with the two bags, he slips on the counter, smashes his head and gets knocked out. So Heath Ledger first bank robbery is like, fuck, what do I do here? Do I just grab the money? Do I dip out? Do I grab my guy Wowza? I can't leave him here. 
So he's like got a shotgun in his hand, two bags of money and try to grab this big ass dude who's knocked out. <laughs> so he's like trying to like grab. It's so funny though. Cause he's, you could tell that such he's good, thinking, it's such good physical comedy. Yeah. Oh physical comedy. And he's thinking about like, Oh, uh, and the scene drags on. So it's just like, dude, get out of there, get out of there. Cause you feel that urgency, but he, he just doesn't know how to react <laughs> because this guy's knocked out. And then he ends up uh, having the driver come in, help him grab the guy while he's like, put him in the car. And then the cops are there. Then so then that, the that's driver. that urgency. Yeah. He gets shot yeah. in the head and all this, all hell ensues. And I just thought it was hilarious. And then there's a, a radio show driving around. They steal a car the guys, the radio show is doing a contest for a bumper sticker. They find him on the road. <laughs> it's still a car. They just robbed the bank, got in the shootout with cops. And then they're like, hey, he's waving to us. And then he drives him off the road. Which is so, ironic because the, the prize is exactly $10,000, which is how yeah. much he owes the bad exactly. guys. Which yeah. is, so I loved all that stuff that's weaved through in mm-hmm. this movie. And you take... You there's a lot a there's like a lot we, there's a lot of weave through because there's a guy drawing you know a gun on one of the on notes the, and, the, and then it kind of comes back to it, him that 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 hundred dollar bill that the street kid uses to go buy a gun and then uh Heath Ledger ends up getting that because that uh the guy who had that hundred dollar bill was depositing at the bank during the robbery mm-hmm. he smacks him in the head takes that money too so yeah that kind of is always they planted uh, so many seeds in this movie mm-hmm. that just like all came together at the end it's just like such a delight and by the way I should say this movie's only 90 minutes so it's a lot of story and character development and seeds planted like to get through yeah so, definitely. yeah um yeah. Was there anything that really stuck out to you on this rewatch, Cameron? No, it was, I mean, exactly what you guys said, like all of the foreshadowing, just, you know, from one scene to the next. Um, I thought the editing was was incredible because, you know, I think there's that moment where Heath kind of realizes that he's absolutely screwed and he's lost the money. And then you jump cut like to the opening of the next, of the next scene and it's his friend or his sister-in-law or whoever, and she's holding up a balaclava and it's like, this is now what you're going to go and have to do in order to fix this situation. So mm-hmm. just the connective tissue from one scene to the next was like, wow, this is really cool. I did think it was so Australian how he lost the money <laughs> originally because right. he, he's basically being sent to go deliver this 10 grand to this woman and she's choking, which by the way, that performance was also incredible. Like this woman, I don't even think, maybe she has one line, but she like is smoking and then she chokes and falls on the ground and then she gets back up and then she chokes more and then she dies. And it's very like, you know, she was like really she preparing was for that character. Only you know? 35. Oh my God. That, I was offended yeah. by that. I was like, I'm not, like, not quite <laughs> well, 35. I, mean, I don't look like She was that. smoking since she was like 11 or 12. You know? That's what you're going to get. I love yeah. that that line from Brian Brown. He's like, I can't believe that a woman of 35 would die of natural yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so And the, the characters, right? So that one dude that wears the sandals who uh, drew that picture on the $100 bill originally, mm-hmm. he was hilarious because he's giving all this like, um, like in-depth information about some random topic, you know, like he's almost an expert on a bunch of different things. And they're yeah. like, really? He's like, well, that's what, I, that's what I looked into. So I just thought all those characters um, played well with each other. I mean, this movie has some Australian legend actors. Uh, Brian Brown as Pando, David Feel as Akko. Like just for me, you know, being an Aussie, I just like delight in seeing them and stuff. And I would like to see them more. But to circle back. So the way that he, he loses the money is he goes to drop it off to this woman who 
is not 35. And I, again, I'm offended uh, that they said that. Uh, and then she dies, and, but he doesn't know that. He just thinks she's not home. This guy sort of looks out the door and he's like, she's not, he's not home. And so he goes to the beach and he's just killing time and he's bored and it's hot. So he buries this envelope. Well, of he sees somebody that looks like Rose. He thinks it's Rose in the water. In the water. So that's why he goes swimming. But still, no, but also it's still like he puts his toes in and he's like, oh, this is nice. And it's Bondi Beach. And then he takes off his clothes and goes in in his underpants and these kids see their moment and mm-hmm. steal. But, but he I, wouldn't He wouldn't have went swimming if if he didn't think Rose. I don't know. I just thought it was so Australian to be like, oh, I'm bored. I'll go to the beach. Okay, I'll just <laughs> jump in the water. You know what I mean? Like, just do the job, my friend. Like, an American mm. wouldn't you know, do that. This is a very <laughs> Australiana thing. Um, but yeah, I, I had to laugh and he just goes in in his underwear. And honestly, like the beach is life in Australia. You know, yeah. people, people love to go there. Uh, it's such a beautifully shot scene as well. You know, like mm-hmm. they just go back and forth between the two parties and mm-hmm. just the pending impending doom that, you know, is, <laughs> is coming. It's mm-hmm. so good. There's that shot of him kind of looking up from the bottom of the ocean as he's, mm-hmm. you know, sort of mid swim and yeah. So great. Yeah. Um, I also, we have to talk about the little kids. So, okay. Maybe I've been out of Australia too long and I know Cameron, you've been out for a minute, but I do not remember gangs of like quote unquote Darrow kids roving around Sydney when I was a child, but I, am I misremembering? I think they made it look more seedy than it was. I mean, I'm not saying Sydney is without its problems and I know you're a Melbourne guy, but I was going to say you should have come to Melbourne. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> exactly. were, were there more "quote unquote" Darrows down there? Um, look, I, I wouldn't label anybody as anything, but it, it certainly What does that even mean? Yeah, what what's it? a Darrow? Yeah, you might have to do some translation. Oh, you want me to? Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you just kind of threw you did, me under the bus. You, you translate. It's like a. a it's like Darrow. a bum, right? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean. I, yeah, sort of. Just kind of someone that just kind of hangs out, you know, at the front of like, you know, a convenience store or something like that. You know, it's just like Jay and of, Silent Bob. Yeah. Well, yeah, just but, waiting but, for their moment. But more, to get but in more sketchy. Yeah. Is it like, yeah. is it short for derelict? I guess so. Yeah. It must be. A Darrow. A Darrow. Yeah. You, you know how Australians like to just shorten words. <laughs> yeah, oh, I love how they abbreathe. <laughs> they abbreathe. <laughs> uh, they just ab, they ab everything. Yeah. They just keep getting shorter. shorter. <laughs> sure, sure. Were there any other words that you didn't know what they meant? Uh, I, I mean, I get the gist. Yeah, I talk a little slang myself. So I, I picked <laughs> up on most of it. But um, was, was one of those kids, the one that ended up shooting up the uh, strip club, was, was that a... What kind of actor was that? I don't. I don't know. Like, were those? Was she a, a young woman, or was that for the start of it? I couldn't look her up. I can't find her character. But I thought I, don't, I wasn't sure. Yeah, if I was a young woman. Or... I don't know. I was also looking for them. Yeah. Um, and I have a feeling that they might be non-binary, or maybe was it Louise? Was that? Her name, their name. In the I'm not movie? sure if they, if those two kids are like saying each other's name. Okay. okay. I'm just, yeah. Yeah. We'll have but, to, um, we'll have to Google it and put it in, but they, they were yeah. both, both the kids were really, really I thought good they were actors. great. Yeah. yeah. For what yeah. they were doing. Um, and then getting bullied. And then that conversation they had on the stairs where they were talking about, I think it was the Aborigines, right? They're like, oh, oh they used to fish yeah. here. And then Aboriginals, yeah, the, they yeah. call them black fellas, and they okay, were talking about it. Yeah, yeah, I, I 
I was hearing Blackfellas and I was like, wait a minute. And I was like, they think they're talking about the native people of, yeah. Yeah. So that was an interesting that conversation what, between that, the two of them. I mean, it's the same with what we were talking about with the castle, David, which is such a sweet film. And I loved rewatching it with you, but there is some language in the film now that in 2022, you're just like, you know, like the term yeah. wog, we talked yeah. about that in um, the castle. It's kind of a derogatory term for mm-hmm. someone of like Greek descent, I think. Is that right, Cameron? Yeah. Yeah. I think Italian. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's stuff like that that's just kind of aged. And like, I think at one point they call someone a pufta, right? Uh, it's definitely like, that. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, Wait, so what is that? Because you, it's you, like a, it's a, the, it's the bad F word that we always start saying on the, you know, like, oh, someone. gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. yeah. Okay. So it's just like shitty things <laughs> like that. And unfortunately, Australiana is like people, you know, the most common word that I, the swear word is the c word which americans will shudder at right but like australians will just what, throw that cunt? around you can't say it on the podcast hey, Ken, <laughs> it's a swear <laughs> i know but americans will censor us you know um I but I, it's, it's just like uh yeah there's some australian terms that you're, you just like cringe a little bit you know and yeah. i don't i don't know cameron if people still talk like that that much because to be honest with you I've, i left australia 10 years ago and i just go back to visit and i probably am not as conscious of it but i think recently ish i saw that they're making a wog boy three which was yeah, i heard that too um i was like just oh. kind of surprising yeah so yes they're still talking about talking that way but it, okay so it's with slang, it's always coming from like the younger generations, right? Because you hear a word like in the States, and you're like, what the fuck are you talking about? But kids have been saying it for a couple months. Or, so then you know maybe, what I mean? Maybe that's not a slang as much as it is a term or like a vernacular. I don't know. Like Australian, Australianisms, I'm obviously out of touch a little bit now, but I feel like a lot of them come from like British, you know, like I, I, I don't know if you use this word at all, Cameron, but I say bingle. If someone gets into like a little bingle. Oh, with of their, course. With, okay, yeah. good. Because I said yeah. it to a different Australian and she's like, I don't use that term. But like I had British get grandparents, into a what? right? <laughs> a bingle. You know, yeah, when you, the, it's not like a that? full on car crash, but like maybe. Okay, I was going to think. You know, uh, like rear bump, end, bumper yeah, to bumper. Yeah, yeah it's like if, if you're parking your car and then, you know, you just nick the, the back uh, tail <laughs> yeah. light of another car. It's like, oh. yeah. a bit of a bingle. I, love, I had to ask because you guys are about to let that one just go. <laughs> like I knew what you were talking about. I mean, you can you can Google Australianisms, but sometimes when I do that, like, or if I'm writing a script or something, and I Google like a British slang or whatever, I'm like, this can't be real. Like some of them are. It's just an ever evolving language, you know. Mm-hmm. It's just a thing. Sure. You just have to be there. You just. I love it there. though. Yeah, some are really like, good. I had the same reaction though to you, Paris. Like when when they were saying like, yeah, some of, some of the stuff, I was like, oh wow. Like that kind of took me back to you know that that's what it's like because i'm yeah because i'm five five and a half years out now myself so i guess i don't know maybe they do still speak like that but also we've probably become ruined by like pc america where we would know (laughs) you know what i mean like where we're like oh um but even just like the terms i was dying like it starts raining and aku goes it's really pissing down and i was was like uh, you wouldn't say that right David, you'd just be like, it's raining. You wouldn't say it was pissing down. <laughs> I, don't, I wouldn't say pissing down. Yeah. I knew exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was just funny stuff too. Like, so a part of the film, they take Heath and they're like going to shoot him in this marsh. And he's trying to like say that there's someone, you know, that can vouch for him and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, what's his number? And he's like, I don't know. Call 013, which is like the old... I don't even know what it would be in America. It was like, like the directory. In- information. Yeah, yeah information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like the fact that the technology kind of jarred forgot, me because they didn't have the like, street. 
the cell phones were really blocky and like, you know. Yeah. Because yeah. today he, he just would have texted them like, hey, yeah. hey no she's one's answering. Here. Yeah. Can someone come over here? And you're like, what do you want me to do? Kick the door open? What? Do you want me to come back? Otherwise, I'm going to go wait in the beach, which might not, they'd be like, no, don't do that. Just come back. Yeah. Yeah. And there were some really Australian things that really stuck out to me. And I don't know if you picked up on this, Cameron, but I was reading like some trivia about the film. Um, so in Australia, there's like two two big car brands are Ford and Holden, and they're like mortal enemies. <laughs> and so like in the film, all the bad guys um, drive Fords where the good guys drive Holdens, which is just like kind of like some shade shit like that you're just like I couldn't believe that either I looked up the exact same trivia and I was like really because then because I'd always wondered why the title was done in that in that font that kind of replicates Ah, like the old Holdens it had never made any sense to me and then when I read that I was like oh okay like that's that's what that is they don't like um imports it's just a rivalry I think I don't know Yeah. yeah Holden is Australian, I believe. Yeah, Ford's US. So I'm just wondering yeah. if it's like a, uh, they don't like imports, import vehicles. But it was, I read this other piece where it was like on the level of detail that I think someone's house number is like 186 or something, which is the size of a Holden engine. I'm like, oh, wow, hmm. like this is, this is pretty listen, serious. And they draw, they drowned somebody too with the engine, the guy that was trying to sell that purple mm-hmm. car. Yeah. yeah. No, but like the, to the to your point of the level of detail, Cameron, like that's where you know the production designer was like having some fun or whatever. You know, like right. the little the little uh, little Easter eggs that then people like us can jump on a film podcast and be like, well, that was <laughs> what funny. Yeah. So this kind of, this kind of reminded me, yeah, kind of like a Guy Ritchie kind of movie, mm-hmm. a little bit. So that's why I think I I love this. Definitely, yeah, yeah. definitely got those. A lot vibes. of fun. So there's a couple scenes though that kind of stuck out to me, and I still don't know how I feel about them. So tell, tell the, us, David. The older zombie brother um, does something to him when he's in the train, and Heath is like, ah, and he's feeling all this pain like in his heart, and then he's like, watching the train go by. The zombie brother from the outside is like, all right, brother. You're on your own now. <laughs> so I'm just like, does that take me out of the story? Do we need the zombie older brother? Right. And I have to say, I have to say. I, I remember, I'm unsure. I remember. It's funny. I turned to, so my partner's American and I forced him to watch this film with me. And I turned to him and I was like, it's funny because I remember watching this film and like studying it and stuff like that and being like, yes, you know, like it snaps. Like I'm in like a coffee house. Cause I think Australian film my take is that there is a little bit of art house threads through it. And that's what this feels like. Mm-hmm. And the acting is so like, he's like railing against his feelings. And I just, you know, we've got a few like really prestigious film schools, like it's uh, NIDA, like all these, like uh, what's the Victorian one again? Uh, afters and um, afters. Yeah. Uh, the one in Victoria is Victorian college of the arts. BCA. Yeah. BCA. Yeah. That's right. And yeah. they're super, super prestigious, but I do feel like they they're like film and TV acting with like a slice of like theater. And that's what that sort of scene felt like to me where we're, we're sensing his emotions. Like his brother is, I don't know. It's a like, higher, uh, an external power yeah. that's unseen. That's it's giving uh, him the power. Exactly. And you know, it's influencing the, the flames a bit. in the eyes. Like where the kid is like, Oh, now I'm on this path and da da da. Yeah. Mm. That scene was a little off. <laughs> I, I agree. Yeah. Like, like from to the that, tone, just from the tone of the whole. And I think they add a little VF uh, 
the X in there too, didn't they? With like like some like gold kind of like <laughs> yeah, something. Like yeah, I don't know what it was, but yeah, it no, was I, I agree. I, I kind of I have a problem with it though because isn't his brother the reason that Akko's bullets get laundry detergent on them? Doesn't he do that? So then yeah. he's in, so he's in the story. He like knocked it over like it's, in Ghost. Yeah. Basically, he is. He has power in the physical world. Yeah, he knocks over that laundry. It's not super makes... clear. The rules are not super clear. Right. I feel like they were double dipping a little bit. Like yeah. just kind of taking advantage. But I was okay with it. It's okay. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't <laughs> not work. What what other scenes, David, made you stop and pause? Um basically those are pretty much it. Like I would watch Rose in anything, probably on mute, black and white. I don't care. She yeah. is gorgeous and i love her as an actor her, um, her character in this was so funny because so she's from mudgy which i don't know if you googled where that is david but it's like a small country town i actually have a bunch of friends from there and mm-hmm. she's in the big smoke which is sydney which no shade to sydney i love you you are my home but it is not a very big city at all you know compared to the cities that you have in like the u.s it, okay size wise i mean it's definitely melbourne and sydney are our biggest cities but like i mean i would have to google the populations but it's probably more like a st louis than a new york right yeah sure totally yeah, yeah. like a wisconsin like a like a milwaukee milwaukee but it's just funny because like the level she's so naive and she comes to the country and then she gets involved you know she sees this stuff happen and it's super fucked up and then they're like, go back to the country, love. And then she's like, <laughs> he's like, no, I'm going to run away. Um, so let's talk about Pando. So I love a good antagonist. I love this actor. As I said, he's evil. He's obviously like trying to kill people and stuff like that. But then he turns around and he's such a good dad and he's doing mm-hmm. origami with origami, his son. Yeah, yeah. And then also, even though he beats the shit out of Heath Ledger's character in front of Rose Byrne's character, he comes out of the car and he's like, have you got money for a taxi love? And he gives her 20 bucks <laughs> and wants to make sure that she gets, what do you, what yeah. do you guys feel? He's not your typical bad guy. Yeah. But I, I recognize him. That's one of the actors I was saying, I recognize, and I was looking up his, uh, filmography and he's got like 93 credits as an actor and yeah he was in cocktails and he's been in a ton of stuff so i think he's a phenomenal actor and he just has such a presence and Mm -hmm. calmness to him Mm -hmm. as a villain Mm -hmm. and it's like you can be powerful because you're commanding instead of like you know a big tough guy or whatever and he just has that presence inside of him Mm -hmm. so it's all it's all face with him because he's very sinewy and like now Mm -hmm. i feel like bad guys were used to like yeah a sort of an archetype but Mm -hmm. i i thought his performance was fucking great yeah he's he's fantastic i think like the thing that what really worked for me was when uh heath ledger asks like what's the money what's the cash for or whatever and and brian brown just kind of takes a beat drinks his beer he's like it's not really for you to be asking mate is it and it's just like oh my god (laughs) (laughs) attention but he's not aggressive in any way he's just like it's none of your business no more aggressive is akko his number two played by david field who is also a great great actor um and such a staple in australian Uh, film but i think they have a really good balance against each other where you've got like the actual mastermind who's like uh, he gets off the phone with his son and he's also like yeah we're gonna have to do him or something about and then he hangs up and he turns to his friend he's like kids man there's this real like balance between the psycho who's just killing people and like you know owns all these strip clubs and then in the back and forth uh when the gun jams Mm -hmm. and about cleaning it and he's like yeah you how long are these 
how old are these bullets? Why would you oh, put them through the fucking I'll washer? I put them through the wash yeah. by accident. <laughs> yeah. We have to talk about Heath Ledger in this film because unfortunately he is no longer with us and mm-hmm. such an amazing actor. You know what I was thinking when I was watching it? I was thinking he is like the of the days Timothy Chalamet, which might be a controversial opinion because I know they are totally different people and all of that, but he gives me the same vibe of like this young, you know, actor or man like on the verge of like all these things and i think uh if we had seen you know he continue in his career we would have seen him change but because we have only a certain amount of films of him that's the vibe that i get that he you know was like the golden boy of cinema at the time yeah it's so interesting that you say that i I read recently that apparently timothy chalamet saw the dark knight and that kind of set him off on his career because of that performance by heath i i that might be totally false, but I, I read that and I was like, wow. So it's really interesting that you're kind of connecting the two, you know, just, just the, the way that they acted. I mean, Heath is like a very stringy guy, you know, attractive and beautiful, but like not, you know, your Hollywood type beautiful. And I think Timothy is the same. Like he's got such an interesting face. Um, not to say that they're not both amazing actors in their own rights. Um, but yeah, I just, that's the vibe I was getting. And also he was, everybody wanted Heath at the time, right? Like I, I was looking at the, his film history. So this was 99 and then also 10 things I hate about you, mm-hmm. 1999. And then it was just like, it just took off. He did the mm-hmm. Patriot with Mel Gibson and yeah, dark Knight, all that stuff. So yeah, he's solid. And I was trying to think or trying to see what like was some of his first credits, but he's looks like he's been acting since he was a child. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He kind of grew up in it, and I think he got started when he was sort of ten or twelve, like on the TV side of things out in Perth. I think he did an episode of Round the Twist, which you probably know, Paris. David, I know that. Know. Show. David <laughs> yeah. has no idea, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and then yeah, did a couple of TV shows. I know all of this because I've read everything there is to read on Heath Ledger. Oh really? Uh, we got yeah. a super fan on our yeah, hands. Yeah, big fan. <laughs> um, but yeah, did a TV show called Raw um, in Sydney, I think, and then and then moved over to America. The thing I couldn't believe, though, like in the film history side of it, was that he did Ten Things first, and then came back to Australia to do wow. Two Hands, which that's kind of blew was, my mind. That's what I was going to ask. He rem- awesome. he remembered his roots. He was like, "I'm not mm-hmm. too big." Julia Stiles at the time was like one of the biggest, you know, rom com actresses in the world, and he's like, "I'm going to do this dark comedy movie with a zombie brother." That definitely <laughs> makes sense <laughs> for the storyline. Um, no, that's amazing. I mean, Heath Ledger's family has gone on to really help bridge the gap for Australian actors as well. There's a Heath Ledger scholarship at the Australian in film organization, which, because, you know, what's interesting about Heath as well is that he did make that jump to America. And I think there are a lot of Americans in film now, but it's, it wasn't as common in the nineties, you know, cause as much as we speak, as much as we speak Australian, which Americans can understand, um, you know, it's, it's a very far away country. And the idea of coming to like Hollywood to act is pretty intimidating, especially back in the 1990s where you didn't have like FaceTime, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, if you look at even the actors that came before him, like the Russell Crowe's of the world, mm-hmm. you know, they really had to work in Australia. And the Ben Mendelsohn is, is another mm-hmm. example, really had to work into their thirties and forties in order to build up Get the recognized. credibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. to then go and have a career and, um, I mean, that's why Heath Ledger is such an enigma because, you know, he went over there when he was, what, like 18, 19, 20 and just took off. Crushed you know? it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you got um, like the Helmsworth brothers, right? Right. He um, set the table for a whole yeah. other generation. But it's like, it's like a swing. So like my acting coach, we were talking about this one day. It's like, 
you know, through like this time period, it was a bunch of UK actors Mm -hmm. and it came back to the States. And then it was like the, you know, Australian actors were coming on super strong. Nicole Kidman, you know, all these different people throughout that, like you said, Russell Crowe and then um, Heath. So, and then it kind of swung back a little bit. So it, it is interesting how these different areas produce actors. Um, but Perth, I think where my guy, my favorite character in this movie, Steve Lee Marquand, is that how you pronounce his name? And that's Wow's character. Mm, the one you, that love, you love Wow. Uh-huh. Is, is my favorite in this whole movie. I love this dude. And I was like, just like looking at his background, just cheesing how great he was with this character, with that, um, <laughs> with that mullet he had. And just like his kids are shooting shotguns in the house. <laughs> and he's so unbothered. Yeah. Like yeah. he shoots the shotgun and he's like, I told you not to play with that. Yeah. <laughs> this guy is fantastic. And I got to go find something else he's in with like a similar character type because I, yeah. I don't know. I just... Also, the hairstyle kind of like is now kind of in fashion, I think, in Australia, oh, yeah. which is kind of funny. I see um, it in West Hollywood too. the mullet is making a comeback and i don't know i don't know how i feel about it to be honest the party in the back and yeah yeah. business on top cut to me with a mullet and david's like hang on a second yeah but dude like the the bank robbery right so uh wowzer he's just like what if the cop he's what if the cops come he's like man just chill out like you just shoot him what what are you talking about he's like shoot him he's like yeah just shoot him he's like listen just have some fun with this <laughs> before they go. Uh, I just, I don't know. Fantastic. I no, just so can't get good. over this guy. Yeah. Also, I want to say, cause I know we're getting close to our time here, but I want to say that we have to talk about how Sydney as a, as a backdrop was such an interesting um, character almost in this film. So King's Cross, David, you wouldn't know this because you are a silly American, but I lived in Sydney and King's Cross is like our red light district kind of, I'm trying to think of like, what's comparable in LA because we don't, LA is such a decentralized, you know, suburby area. I don't think there's really anywhere Um, in Amsterdam. It would be, yeah, like sort of like the more red light district somewhere sort of like borderline seedy and dangerous. It's actually become very trendy now, I believe. But even when I was at university in like the early mid two thousands, I'm not old. Okay. I'm not as old as that lady that died. Um, (laughs) It was like, you know, dodgy and there were like strip clubs and peep show type things. And, you know, the bars would stay open till 6am where they didn't stay open that late everywhere. So super interesting to see the backdrop of Sydney and like the bank where they robbed them and just like the vibe of how this is what I feel like when I go back to Australia now, like everything's just so spread out, you know, like there is public transport, but it takes a long time to get to places, you know, and like you see them walking up the, up the street and like all these big houses with big gardens and yards. Um, yeah, it was, it was an interesting choice for this, for this like character almost, you know, the beach, the city, it's just, yeah, I enjoyed seeing it with, uh, with this action happening over top of it. Yeah, me too. I mean, sometimes I think like watching Australian films now, like living in a different place, it's like, uh, you know, I get like a little uncomfortable sometimes with how it's represented, but with this, it just felt so authentic to what the cross actually is like, you know? Because they weren't making, they weren't sort of like making it cheesy. They were just like, this is a city that equally has an underbelly, blah, 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 you know? Yeah. No, I mean, it kind of reminded me of Lockstock a little bit. Like you guys were talking about Snatch. Like it's kind of like, this is the warts and all, you know, authentic um, POV of, of this place. So 
So they did a great job. 100%. Well, I'm so glad that you recommended this film, Cameron, because it was definitely worth a rewatch. And it is available on Amazon Prime in the US. You do have to pay for it. I couldn't find it anywhere for free. I might have been. It was worth the four bucks. I think it's on Netflix as well at the moment. I'm pretty sure. God damn it. (laughs) Uh, I I don't think so. I, I looked on Netflix and it like brought it up in my app, like Netflix app, but then it said like not available. Uh, So maybe, maybe they're getting it at some point or had it at some point. But we do have a lot of listeners in Canada and Australia and I'm, you know, check, check it out. It it might work in, um, right. It might work in other places. Yeah. Give it a go. Give it a go. But it's, it's definitely worth the three ninety nine. Um, but we are getting close to that time, my friends. So we have to, um, uh, call, call out somebody, give somebody a little shout out uh, about it. We didn't really jump into the diversity, but it's Australia in 1999. There's nobody of color in here. This spoiler alert. I, I, just, I covered it. Um, <laughs> what, who do you have to shout out David William? Okay. I went with um, Emily Ceresen, costume designer, because this was definitely nineties outfits and I thought I thought they're fantastic. It took me back in time, uh, especially when the kids went on the shopping spree after they took the 10 grand. I thought those looks were hilarious um, and, and fun. And she's worked on like the hunter, most recently the invisible man. Um, and yeah, she's just uh she did her thing in this. I thought all the looks were great, especially on Rose, of course. And my guy Wowza, obviously. <laughs> Um, so Emily, we see you and we appreciate you. We see you and we appreciate you. And what about you, Cameron? Who would you like to shout out from this film? I would shout out Lee Smith editor. I just thought just the cuts were so representative of that time in, in film in Australia, you know, um, just reminded me of like the romper stompers and chopper and that sort of thing. It just had that kind of that look of it. So yeah, I appreciated that. All great movies that we will need to cover. Well, we see you and we appreciate you, Lee. Um, thank you for your contribution. Well, mm-hmm. I did Kathy McMorrow, who was a stunt driver. Um, we're going to talk to a stunty very soon in one of our episodes. And I'm very excited. Um, stunt people put their body on the line literally every single day they go to work. Um, stunt driving is also really challenging. And there were some really cool car chases, like what David mentioned, where Heath rams the car into the radio car that's trying to give him 10 grand. So that was really fun. And I loved that they had that because I don't know, like if you think of an Australian movie, you don't think of like a fun car chase. So I would say, Kathy, we see you and we appreciate you. See you and we appreciate you. It looks like her last credit was in 2001 on the man who sued God, but she also worked in Babe, Pig in the City, which is one of my favorite movies from being a kid, and a bunch of other things like Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the movie, and The Island of Dr. Maru. So she has been around, and uh, we love love stunties. We know a lot of the stunties. But now, you guys, we must decide, has – well, first of all, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Mm -hmm. First, we must say to Cameron, um, any final advice to people – who might be thinking about applying to a screencraft uh, program or, you know, are trying to make it as a creative in our business? Um, I would say just to remain as pliable as, as you possibly can. I think, you know, it's, it's um, kind of like a default position sometimes to, you know, kind of grasp onto your own material and feel like, you know, I I know how to, you know, the way forward and all of that. So I, I found that, 
the best success that we can have on our end is with riders who are adaptable and, and willing to listen to um, different pathways that we can potentially take for them. So I think pliability is a, is a big one um, and something that's useful. Love that. And mm-hmm. definitely check out Screencraft. What's great about these podcasts is we have podcast show notes that we can put in the body. So we'll definitely include some links that we'll get off Cameron of uh, how to check out what's coming up and how to track. I know Coverfly is amazing and you should definitely check out that. It's a great way to find all the different competitions coming up. Um, thanks again, Cameron. Uh, people should definitely check out Screencraft, mm-hmm. but we need to decide whether or not this film has aged like milk, has it gone bad over time or has it stayed fresh? David, you go first so Cameron can see how we do it on the podcast. Okay. I feel like everybody can probably guess what I'm going to say, but I do not think this movie aged like milk. I think this is a good flavored zombie milk, right? Mm, so just a little you know, sprinkle of zombie zombie milk, milk that forces around you that you can't see. Just <laughs> adding a little bit of flavor mm-hmm. to your milk in the sprinkles. morning. Love exactly. That. And it was good to see a young Heath see like he could play sensitive and strong at the same time, which is hard to do for actors. So having that and and the talent, you know, it's easy to see how why he was so successful and then just all the other characters that are involved in this movie and like Paris you were saying all the little things that are weaved in it so this movie's smart funny and it's got rose in it so yeah all around <laughs> my I, biggest I'm, takeaway from this film is that David has a <laughs> massive crush on Rose Bell that I did not crush. know about yeah she's fantastic but I, I love this movie I thought it was great and thank you guys for suggesting it and putting oh, it on yeah. my radar Cameron what do you think um, so I put it in a fair bit of thought to this. I think that, and look, you tell me if this isn't acceptable, but no, I was going to say. No, everything you say is acceptable. There are no rules on the age like the <laughs> podcast, except was, don't be a dick. That's the main rule. Okay, and, no problem. Yeah. Um, I was going to suggest that perhaps this is aged like Bundy Rum. Um, Ooh, good, good. You'll have to explain that to the Americans. Right, listening. right. So that, it's something that's that's uniquely Australian that when you have it, you tend to have a good time that you might regret later on, but it's just something that, you know, it doesn't necessarily, it's not like scotch or whiskey. It doesn't necessarily get better after time, but it's just mm. always, always a good time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I will I say that. it age like that. Uh, like a Bundy rum milk. Well, you kind of, <laughs> you kind of stole my Australian. I was going to say, this is a Vegemite milk. Okay. It is a specific flavor that most people, if you consume it in the right way, will think that it's delicious. But then if you think you're getting like a super dark film, you might be like, well, this is kind of got funny elements in it. Like the, when the guy just falls over the, the the bank thing and then he slides on the floor for five minutes and it's super uncomfortable. <laughs> but it, you might also think it's a straight comedy and then be like, oh, these people are straight up murderers. Like what's going on? So I still think this movie is great. I personally love Vegemite. So I am saying that it's a good film. Um, I do think... Like we always say, you know, nowadays, like the lack of diversity always makes me pause because I know that Australia is a very diverse place. Um, But outside of that and certain word choices, I do think that the story is very, you know, is very good and still holds up and it's a fun movie. And, you know, just if we can learn anything, it's just don't go for a swim if you're supposed to be delivering $10,000. Because one thing that was interesting was, he gets his money stolen from this girl 
And then he goes and delivers the new or this person and goes and delivers the new $10,000 that he made from robbing a bank. And then he decides to leave being an evil, you know, crime type person. And as he's walking out the corridor, the younger person is walking in and it's almost like these two bookends of like where their lives kind of weirdly intersected because the reason she comes to kill the baddies is that they hit her friend with the car and then just drive off. So it's like, we're all connected and also like sliding doors at the same time. So yeah, good milk, delicious Mm -hmm. milk. Thank you for suggesting it, Cameron. My pleasure. And also shout out to Powderfinger for uh, for the soundtrack choice at the end. Yeah. Oh my God. Powderfinger is... Yeah. I mean, this movie could not have been more Australian if it tried. I think they, they, you know, they weren't eating Vegemite and that was the only thing that was missing, but they were drinking beers out of Australian koozies. It was great. We loved it. Yeah. Okay. Stubby holders. <laughs> Stubby holders. Yeah. <laughs> I said koozie. I know. I'm, fine. I'm, I'm, I'm too culturally fucked up at the moment. You changed. Ah, well, Cameron, again, thank you so much. We appreciate you coming on the podcast. I know I kind of asked you last minute, but I think it's really fascinating to get your take on the biz and to hear more about ScreenCraft and to have random movies that we have to rewatch. So we truly are grateful that you came on. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you so much for having nice me. Nice to meet you, man. Yeah, likewise. It was so nice uh, to chat. Chat about movies. And when we are all in the same place at the same time and coronavirus is not trying to cripple us all, um, we will grab a drink, but you don't have to bring a stubby. It's okay. We'll just get it in a glass. It'll be <laughs> That sounds wonderful. I would love to. All right. Well, thank you. And for now, David, you should check your fridge. Make sure that milk ain't spoiled. Gross milk is gross. That's our show. Thanks for tuning in. Like, subscribe, follow, and go find Cameron and the Screencraft folks. They are awesome and they are helping writers find their futures. Thank you so much. Bye. (laughs) 